to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Do you numb yourself from uncomfortable emotions? Are you so busy running from activity to activity that you don't have time to build the kind of life you want to live? Do you ever feel like you're missing out on living your best life? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's show is for you. I'm talking to Mallory Irvin. She won the Miss Kentucky pageant in 2009. Then in 2010, she became the fourth runner-up to Miss America. She's also been on The Amazing Race three different times. By all means, she's successful. But she says that while she was earning all those achievements and all of those claims to fame, she secretly didn't feel good enough. In order to numb her pain, she started taking prescription pills and didn't recognize how big of a problem they had become in her life. It wasn't until she went to rehab and got treatment that she realized she actually hadn't been living her best life, despite all the cool things she was doing. Now she's written a book called Living Fully, Dare to step into your most vibrant life. And on today's show, some of the things she talks about are how she learned to stop numbing her painful feelings, what she learned about herself in treatment, and the steps that are helping her live a richer, fuller life. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Mallory's strategies and talk about how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Mallory Irvin on how to stop numbing yourself to painful emotions so you can become the strongest and best version of yourself. Mallory Irvin, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you so much, Amy. I'm so excited to be here. You um, have come with quite the reputation, the great reputation from our mutual friend, Mike Bayer. So well, you uh, as well. I'm so excited. It was a long time ago <laughs> that he told me you should need to have her on your podcast. But then we knew you had a book coming out. So I'm excited that I got to read your book uh, before anybody else did. Thank you. And it's a wonderful book, Living Fully, Dare to Step Into Your Most Vibrant Life. So Thank I hope you. all of our readers go out and all of our listeners, I say readers because I'm an author too and I'm used to talking about readers, but I hope all of our <laughs> listeners <laughs> buy a copy of your book. But before we dive into into some of the what I thought were the best parts of your book, can we talk a little bit about your your story? I think if somebody meets yes. you on the street, they're going to think, "Wow, this is a beautiful lady with a charmed life." But there's more yep. to your story behind oh, that yeah. struggles. <laughs> uh, and granted, you've had some pretty amazing things happen, but you didn't get there without some struggles along the way. No. Can you? Share a little bit about your story. Absolutely, yes. And it's like, who gets there without struggles along the way? But um. So it took me eight years to share this version of my story. And I think now is the right time because I think sometimes people share that version of their story so early, they're looking for validation in it, or they, they're just kind of on shaky ground. And you know, like recovery is shaky ground anyway. So, you know, I, my life speaking, you, you use the word charmed. So I'll use that, um, that word, but um, I was the oldest of 23 first cousins that grew up on this farm together in Western Kentucky. I had the most amazing, ideal, just pleasant childhood. Um, I was the oldest of all of these kids. So I think that's where kind of my need to achieve was born. So 
uh, I was valedictorian and, you know, all the things you can do as a young person to achieve. But it was never crippling to me. It was never something that I felt uh, stood in the way of living my fullest life until, you know, I went to college and kind of went along a normal path. And then after college, I won Miss Kentucky, the Miss Kentucky pageant. So Miss Kentucky leads to the Miss America pageant. Uh, and in 2010, I was runner-up uh, in the Miss America pageant, and I walked off the Miss America stage and was cast in a reality TV show called The Amazing Race. I raced around the world. Um, you race around the world for a million-dollar prize uh, if you win the show, and I went with my dad. Soon as we got done with that season, we were cast for an all-star season. So within one year of my life, and here I am in my early 20s, I had just been, you know, runner-up in the Miss America pageant, and... Um, did these two very public, forward-facing, um, successful things at a young age. And it started to kind of mess my mind up a little bit in that I felt I always had to top the last thing that I did. And for that year, you know, I kept topping. And you've got my whole hometown. I'm from this tiny town. My whole hometown was cheering me on to my family. And I put a lot of pressure on myself. I, it was just such a, an amazing time in my life. And then as a lot of great things um, turn, it started to be something as time went on and as I no longer was doing things like that, I started feeling awful about myself and I started taking prescription medication that the doctor prescribes to me and I thought was okay until it wasn't. For five years, my prescriptions went up and up and up to the point that uh, if you read my book, you see like I almost lost my life to it. And I walked into a doctor's office in Nashville, Tennessee and I had a doctor look at me and say, I don't know what you're doing, but if you continue to do what you're doing, you, you'll you die. And I thought to myself in the back of my mind, Amy, which is so sad to, to think about, I thought I've lived, I've lived a good life and I've done all these great things. I've made all these people proud and I'd rather go out like this than uh, have to tell people what's going on. That is how attached I was to this uh, version of myself and to being seen a certain way. I was willing to lose my life over it. And um, this is the big catalyst of my story because my parents were around me one weekend. They lived in Kentucky. I was in Nashville. And you know, like addictions, sometimes they're hidden. You, you, I did a lot of these things in, in private and they weren't around me. I was very isolated. And the second they were, uh, they said, something is not right. We've never had anyone in our family go to a treatment center or be in recovery. So they started Googling, you know, what, what to do in a situation like this. And I ended up at a, a place called Karen Treatment Centers. It's a dual diagnosis facility in Pennsylvania. And I went there, showed up, uh, stayed for 30 days and was recommended uh, extended care and stayed for another like four months. So I was there for, I think it was over five months actually at the end. And it was the best work I ever did in my life. And for eight years, I haven't told that part of the story. I've been an online presence. I have a, we have you know, over a million followers across um, all of our social medias. And we have a lot of people following along with our lives that really love it. And they're like, oh, I wish we could be happy and feel like we could live these kind of lives. And I knew I was leaving part of my story out. And I knew if I wanted to be any kind of influence to people, I had to tell them this part of the story. So that was a long-winded way to say that. Sorry, Amy, that was a lot to share, but it's kind of how I got here. But, you know, thank you for sharing that. Uh couple questions about that. When your parents said, okay, something's not right, did you tell them or how did they figure it out that you had a problem? 
I was really delusional. I knew that like something was off in my life. I knew I was taking too much of this medication. I was on, you know, Adderall during the day and Ambien at night, but a normal dose of a prescription like that is 20 milligrams at the highest dose, 30 at the very highest. I was on like 300 and taking 50 milligrams of Ambien to sleep, drinking a whole bottle of wine, weighed 90 pounds. I I knew I was taking too much because I was having to go to multiple doctors to, to get that medication. And I wasn't taking it as prescribed. And I felt like a shell of a person. So, but all that being said, I still thought I don't need to go to a treatment program because I don't do drugs. <laughs> I thought that that those didn't qualify, even though I was taking too many, like a lot of people, I think, think about yes. medications like that. And I want to pause and say, medication for, for conditions that you have are life-saving and life-changing if taken as prescribed. So I'm very much not anti-medication by any means. I was not prescribed that medication for a condition that I had. I did not have that condition. I was prescribed because I wanted that medication. And um, as the years went on, it just got to the point where I was taking so much of it. But I thought, so, you know, when you show up to 30-day treatment place, they, uh, they know you're not going to say, here's what I'm on. I'm on this dosage. I, let me be really honest with you. I, I haven't been honest for the last eight years, but let me be really honest with you. <laughs> so I showed up and I said, my parents, can they sit in the waiting room uh, while you take my blood so you can tell them that, like, I don't, this isn't the place for me. I was so delusional until the last moment. And honestly, sorry. And honestly, it took me um, at least a week and a half being there. Uh, and when the fog started to lift and when I got past, you know, you don't sleep for the first week and it's you just your, your skin is crawling and you're going through withdrawals. But once I got past that and I felt my soul come alive again, I felt joy, not chemically manufactured. I felt I could sleep on my own. I realized like I do belong here. This was a, as severe of a problem as all the other people in this circle, regardless of what they were taking or what I was taking. And um, I realized that I was in the right place. And I did a lot of, you know, good work in the first 30 days. But in 30 days, it's really just the sobriety piece, I feel like. They try and get to the bottom of it, but um, there's only so much you can do in 30 days. So I thought I was done after 30 days. I felt very strong in my sobriety, but you and I both know and being in the mental health realm that it is the the sobriety is one thing you you then have to get the shovel out and see what in the world was underneath uh what got you there in the first place and i hadn't done a lot of that work uh so when they recommended me to the to the extended care program i was i was totally shocked because there were people that didn't get recommended to extended care that i felt like at that point in time i was trying to qualify myself as not as bad at that were, in my opinion, then worse off than I was, and they were getting to go home. And they said to me, we haven't done any of the work um, beyond this and behind this. And, you know, I just, I thought that we had or whatever. So I go across the street to the extended care program, and that is where I did the biggest work uh, of my life. And they knew what they were doing with me. I think I was a different kind of case for them. And the things that they did uh, that really broke me were very specific and interesting. And I share a lot of them in the book. I open the book with a story um, about them taking my hair, my permanent long hair extensions out. For the first time in 10 years, I'd never gone a day without them. And when they took that last extension out of my hair and turned my chair around, I had two inch long broken off like 
hair. And I never, I hadn't seen myself like that. I had an out of body experience and a low that I, I hadn't, I had never hit. And uh, it was the start of a lot of work that I had to attachments of this person that I was and attachments to appearance. And I think some of that stemmed from just doing pageants and being known for things like that. But did a lot of work around that. Um, and the attachments that I had later, the attachments that I had to things that were seemingly good, all these things that I'd done in my past were valiant, were great things. I mean, Miss America, the, I did great work whenever I did the Miss Kentucky pageant. And what a fun thing to race around the world with your dad. But I was so attached to those things. And I held those things up in front of me when I would meet people or be around people. And I, I hid behind them. And when they started to strip those things away from me in this treatment program, uh, I did the deepest work of my life. And I think that's why I'm still sober today and feel like I'm truly living fully. That was really the catalyst to that. I think there's this misconception that people will say, well, I got addicted to a substance because my world was awful, right? Things were going Mm -hmm. awful. I felt horrible. And in your case, life was really good, at least from the outside, right? Yes. And, um, and it felt really good. Like whenever I started to take these medications, I was just doing all these awesome things and I just needed more energy during the day and then I needed to be able to sleep at night. And it's such a slippery slope because what I realized, like as I started coming off of that medication and treatment and started feeling better, I just kept thinking to myself, why did I start doing this in the first place? Like this feels so much better. Because at the end, you know, you just feel like a rotten shell of a human being that is just totally controlled by these substances. And uh, it makes me realize, though, it happens so slowly and gradually. And then, of course, as addiction will take hold, then you can't, you can't get out of it once you get to a certain level. It is very hard to get out of it. I really admire people who can walk into rooms and get sober. I really admire people who can, I don't I don't know anyone personally who has truly ma- maintained sobriety that is like the cold turkey kind of person. But there's so much work to do underneath all of it to end up in a place like that. And thank the Lord for um, recovery for me, because I don't know if I ever would have done that work. A, I wouldn't be alive today. I do think that my addictions would have killed me. Uh, but B, who who knows if that shell would have ever been cracked, you know? Um, I didn't even have a reason to go to therapy, you know, I, and it was such a catalyst to all the things that I talk about in mental health now in this whole book that I've written, living fully was born from that experience, um, for sure. What made you go to treatment, especially the extended care, if you didn't think that you needed it? I, for, at first, I, my life was very hopeless at that point in time. So I was about, I was years past this, this Miss America and this, uh, you know, reality TV stint. I'd filmed a lot of pilots for TV shows. They always fell through. I really kind of had nothing. And then like my boyfriend, now my husband, but he dated me while I was in my active addiction too. We had broken up and I really had nothing at all. So I think as rock bottom sometimes is, um, it's a, it's a really good place in a way because when you, when there is literally nothing left, uh, sometimes it's easier to be like, I don't think I need this, but whatever, what else am I going to do? Um, I think that was part of it, but I think a really big part of it was my mom and my aunt were not really going to take no for an answer. I was over 18. As people know, like when you go into a treatment program, if you're over 18, you can walk out the doors. 
But I don't know what I would have been walking out the doors to. My life yeah. felt empty and just over in a lot of ways. So I think in the back of my, in the very, very back crevice of my mind, even in the beginning, even though I was trying to qualify myself and disqualify myself from everything there, I, I think I knew I needed something. And this was the only thing that was offered to me. Uh, and then I think those first days of feeling better, if you can just cling to those tiny little things and just start to feel a little bit better, that is when the snowball starts rolling. And then they start doing the real work and they get the shovels out, you know, and start really digging. And then you want to leave again. <laughs> so then you have to make another choice to stay. And I almost left after the hair extension thing and I chose to stay. And that was truly my decision. And I think at that point in time, when when I when I saw what happened to me and I had this out-of-body thing happen, when they took that hair out, I realized that I had some other issues that I didn't know that I had that I needed to work on. And I knew I was in the right place to do that. So even though it was like so uncomfortable and touching every single open wound and nerve that I had all at the same time, I, I knew I needed to do it. And so that's why I chose to stay in the latter half. And then once you got discharged from there, what kind of treatment did you get or what kind of ongoing help did you? So we did, we had an amazing thing called my first year. And I had done a lot of work there. You know, I stayed at treatment a lot longer than a lot of people did. Uh, but but Karen has a really amazing first year program that helps with accountability. So you do like a 90 and 90, but there are random drug screens every two weeks, I think. Um, so if you have a family member possibly who like sent you to treatment or who's very worried about you, this takes all of that out. So I was sober. I felt strong in my recovery. I didn't mind doing, um, random tests. And I did that for a whole year. I wasn't court ordered. I wasn't in any trouble, but like my parents said, I would love if we, if you could do this since you've spent all this time and I had no problem with it. Along with that comes um, counseling with your counselor from the treatment center and another person that you're signed. And then whoever the person is in your life that you deem and you do these calls. I think we did a call uh, maybe every two weeks when I first got out and then it went to every month. And not only was it a great thing to keep me accountable, I had other things in place to keep me accountable, but it kept the people around me feeling like I was on the right track. And for me, disappointing people and feeling like people thought that I let them down was such a huge thing. And I'd worked through a lot of that, but that was certainly something that helped me to help them. And um, I'm, I'm a parent of two kids now. I have a two and a three-year-old. I'm also pregnant with, I'll, you know, I'll have a third baby. And I think being a parent now on the other side of this, I think how hard it would be to be the family member that has to put the child into a program, um, especially a child that has made you so proud and has been such an example to your other children and cousins and has always walked a different path. I can't imagine how hard that would be. And um, my parents had very different experience with it. My parents are both married. They're still married. Um, to each other. And, but they totally disagreed on this. So my dad is just like the people in our lives that I wouldn't call him a full-blown enabler, but he definitely thought I could pull through this on my own. Yeah. And if it were up to him, I wouldn't have gone to treatment and I wouldn't be here today. But my mom was so strong in her push to get me there. 
And she was the only, she was the catalyst to that. She was the only reason that I ended up there. She and my aunt, but my aunt was in medicine and she kind of saw some red flags too that people in the medical world can see that we sometimes can't. And when they dropped me off and they left, um, my dad, my mom said, I feel so relieved. And my dad said, I feel like I'm abandoning my child. Oh, interesting. And, you know, it's just, when you have a red flag, hopefully you have people on the outside that will not only step in, but will step in and not continue to enable you, that will step in and really give you a shot at this professional help that I absolutely needed. And um, I think about that now as a parent, even though my kids are young, how hard that would be and what a tough decision that that would be. And one that I am so grateful that I'm so thankful for my, my mom doing that for me. I can only imagine how tough that must have been for her. But you're right. I think we have a lot of listeners who are probably struggling with something, yet they don't really want to admit that it's an addiction or that it's a problem. And maybe going to a treatment center or getting help is like that, like, no, I'm not there yet. What would you say to somebody who who feels like that? I, I will say I, I was you. And I know I shared the number of the you know milligrams that I was on at the end. Uh, but I needed treatment before then. Um, and I think that uh, I know that Addiction is so hand-in-hand with delusion, especially toward the middle and end. And you're thinking and you're so far removed from yourself that you you can't even remember like how it used to be. But if things are moving in a direction where you wake up in the morning and you just feel rotten and you just feel like it's a dead end road and you just feel dissatisfied with your life, over and over, you feel dissatisfied in your job or in your relationships, or if you see patterns in your life of things that just continue to not work out, I would just say, if you could just pause and and look at your life and look at what you're using to numb out. I numbed things out for such a long time, and mine did turn into an addiction. But even if you're not at the point that I was where you need to be admitted into a 30-day program, Numbing things out will drastic will give you a drastically different life than if you can face that what's going on. I wrote the first part of this book to a person that is me, you know, I hit the rock bottom. But the last eight years of my life, and honestly, like the first 20 something years of my life, I didn't drink until I was a senior in college. So I did not, I didn't have maybe someone saying I'm not that bad. I wasn't either for the first 20 something years of my life. I haven't been for the last, you know, eight years. I feel very strong in my recovery. And I think that the rock bottom for me now and the choice that I have to make in the everyday is when I start to feel like that, I have to be the person. There's no red flag. Somebody's like, she has a drug addiction. Take her to treatment. But I know when my life is off. And the people listening to this will know when their life is off. I do not believe that you, you should trudge every day through life. Some people have a tougher road. I absolutely understand that. But I do believe that there is a brighter and a bigger version of life available to everyone. And I, I think that in the back of your, if, if in the back of your mind, you're starting to feel that way when you wake up in the morning, you need to look at your life and you need to look at the things that the patterns in your life, you need to look at, it may not be prescription medication, but you know something else that I use now to numb things out and to avoid and to not face things is social media. I will right. scroll and I will scroll and I will scroll. And people will not think of that as an unhealthy thing that you're using to numb or squash down feelings. 
And I, and it absolutely is because I know the red flags being that I came from a world of recovery. I, I know what I'm doing when I'm doing it. But if you haven't been through something like that, maybe you're just feeling super off in your life. Well, I can tell you if you are unhealthily attaching yourself to, to anything, um, it doesn't have to be a substance abuse issue. Then you can, there is so much better of a version of life available to you if you can work through some of that. Uh, that will hold you back in life as much as a, as a drug addiction will in a lot of instances. And it's, it's much harder to spot yes. and to, to treat, I feel like. I think so too. And when you, if we just looked at how often we pick up our phones, right, to deal with boredom when you're in line, to deal with loneliness when there's nobody around, to distract you from your thoughts, a lot of the same sorts of things. Mm -hmm. What about for people who will say, well, all right, I have to kind of stay numb because I can't handle the pain. What would you say to somebody about how do you learn how to manage the uh, uncomfortable emotions? I think, um, fortunately, there are so many amazing resources. Uncomfortable emotions are one thing. Trauma is a totally different thing. Yes. And I think that there are amazing resources. There are therapists. There are 12-step programs. There are, maybe if somebody says, I cannot afford a therapist or, I, you know, I don't have access to therapy. Um, there are there are free programs. There are There are websites that can guide you like yours. There are podcasts. There are so many resources out there now, especially in our world. Any way you want to consume content, you can consume content. It is available to you. It's just about, it's about making the choice though, because if you, I think that if you have had major trauma in your life, I hope that you can find a way to make it to professional help. It does not have to look like going away to some program, but it can look like going into a therapist's office for 60 minutes. And I think most therapists, even if they don't know what to do with you, they know what direction to point you in. And that will hold you back from living fully. Un, uh, undealt with issues will hold you back from a full life more than as much as a drug addiction will. So I do believe that that's a red flag and that's something that I just hope anyone listening to this would have the courage and strength to face. And I can promise you, guarantee you on the other side of that is a brighter, a more amazing, full existence. And you you just have to walk through a hard piece of that um, journey and that you have to face it and then do some work around it. But if they're a person that feels like I don't have any trauma, I didn't have trauma in my past, but I did have patterns of unhealthy behavior in that I was very attached to being seen as special and different and being a performer and achieving. And it was very clear to a lot of people on the outside when that started to shift into an unhealthy attachment, I think an, a healthy thing could turn unhealthy very quickly and oftentimes without the person even realizing it. And to that type of person, um, I think that uh, there are a lot of things that you can do yourself that can help you identify those things. And I think a really powerful tool and one that you hear all the time, but you hear it all the time because it's powerful. I think journaling has shown me a lot of my patterns in just my everyday in recovery, healthy life. I can, if I can just get the thoughts out of my head, instead of sitting in my bed and scrolling through Instagram or whatever it is that I'm mindlessly reading, 
if I can take a second to just write about my day, I can always go back and look for patterns. There was something that I've seen recently in my life. Um, and I could go back a journal entry and I could see I was saying something in a different way, but I was saying the same thing. I, I needed something different in my life. I could turn back and, and I could very clearly see this pattern. So I believe that there are definitely tools, whether you are all the way in the program like I have been. Uh, I've also been the person where journaling revealed a pattern to me that I was able to work with. Or you're somewhere in the middle where you can find a good therapist or 12-step group or websites and podcasts and and books are amazing resources. But you have to want to do it. Um, That's why I always say sometimes the red flags are much easier because you have someone that's going to push you in the direction of something. It's very clear. Oh, you're dealing with a drug addiction? Here's where you go. But the person that comes to the front of the line and says, I just feel off. Yeah. I just don't feel happy most days. I feel like I'm numbing out and I sit, I live for the weekends and I sit on the couch and I'm on social media and my relationships feel foggy, like I'm not really connecting. That's where it's harder. So if you don't choose to find a professional to help you through this, you have to be the one to take a step back and pause and do some intentional work. That's why I wrote this book. I do not want people to live like this. It is, I don't want to say a waste of a life. A life is never wasted, but you are wasting a pretty dang good version of your life. If you don't take a second to pause and explore it and say, you know what, I can make this little change and move in a significantly better direction. There are very small things that I've changed in my life recently that I wrote about in the second half of the book that made leaps and bounds, huge differences in my days. Something that we deal with, I think, a lot is fear. Sometimes we'll get in an obsessive loop of like, fear. I don't want to make a decision of something that I know I should make a decision about because I'm afraid of something. And it will just run my mind um, over and over and become this obsessive thought. But if I can find that pattern and see that pattern um, and shift that pattern, look at that fear. Is this a legitimate fear? Okay. You have to consider some fears are protecting us from things. I don't think that fear is always a bad thing. But if it is an irrational fear, and oftentimes it is, I know and have a system to putting that in the back of my mind where it's not driving the ship anymore. And it drastically changes my days. But I have to pause. I have to become aware. I have to identify it. And then I have to do some of the work. But that's not not a 30-day program or an overhaul. That's a simple thing that makes a big difference in a day. One of the things I really appreciate about your book is when you talk about live fully, you say it's not about being more but being busier, filling your day with more stuff. Mm -hmm. Because I think people will confuse that. They'll think, well, you were on The Amazing Race several times. You're a pageant queen. You're doing all of this stuff. That's about living fully. You don't ever want to sit and take time to do nothing. But you argue the opposite. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. When I had this full life, I felt the opposite. I felt empty. Um, It's very much the opposite of that. And I think that busyness and overworking and just this obsessive need to move and move and move and move in life is a big problem right now. It's something that I fall into that I always have to watch because I'm a high energy person and I always have been. And I used to think that like filling my life with all of these things and these accolades and these achievements and all of this stuff, that was the top of the mountain. Right. That was where I would find the joy. So I'd get to the, to the top and I would, I would be at the top and I would think in the back of my mind, huh? Hey, this certainly does not feel as good as I thought it was. 
especially not compared to like the drudgery that it took to get to the top of this dang mountain. Uh, and I kept feeling that over and over. And then eventually, if I couldn't get to the next mount, the next higher mountain, then it just became about being at the top of the mountain. I didn't even care how I felt at the top of the mountain. But I really think that I know in my own life that slowing down and weeding out some of these things that I feel like I have to do, slowing my mind down, putting my phone down, it makes my life it makes my life so much more full. And I'm really glad that you pointed out that distinction, Amy, because I never want people to look at my book and kind of know half of my story and think, oh, she's going to tell us that it's the Miss America and it's the TV. And like, she's going to tell us how to live fully. And it's all these things because that's the time of my life where I wasn't living fully. And it's on the other side of this. And it's in a we're, we're busy because we've got ki- kids will fill up a day right? Like, <laughs> and a life. Uh, that's, that's a busy that is unavoidable. But there is busy that um, is avoidable. And there is bu- busy that will, certainly the life is full, but living fully is much more about a way of being. And living fully is is about a feeling of of fulfillment. And you and I and everybody on this podcast probably knows that when your days are jam-packed from 6 a.m. until 9 p.m. and you don't even have a second to breathe, does anybody feel good in that life? Does anybody feel, do you lay down in your bed and you think, gosh, I I feel great about how things are going? No, you feel exhausted and overwrought and, and mad and angry and like something needs to change, but you wake up in the morning at 6 a.m. and you do it all again. And you take your phone to the bathroom because <laughs> you don't, you won't even have a second without it. You feel every single space of your already busy life. And that is the opposite of the way that I want to live. I used to think, I used to cringe when people would say, just be, mm-hmm. just be, don't be a human doing, be a, you know, be, don't be a human being or however they say that. Don't be a human doing, be a human being. Yep. And I was always like, B, B is so lazy. Why would you waste like the opportunity that is life? And I think in such a different way now, because the opportunity that is life is certainly filling your life with the things that make you happy and make you feel joy. But it's definitely got, it needs to leave a lot of room for living too. And doing all of these things and filling every single crevice and space in a 24-hour day is is certainly not living. And at the end of my day, when I lay down, I want to feel fulfillment, not full. And um, I think that's the difference in a jam-packed life like I used to have. You could certainly call it living fully. I was, there was, it was full. There was a lot of, I was, I was living every second, but there was not any fulfillment in that eventually. I'm glad you made now that distinction is. because I feel like so many people uh, get con- get that confused or they feel like if they just do enough every day, somehow I'll be worthy. Or if I get enough things done, if I achieve enough things, yes. if I'm productive enough that somehow I'll feel better. Uh, can you give us, leave us with just one last tip for somebody who says, okay, I want to start living more fully. What can I do? Yes. I can say, okay, if you're a person that has the red flag, like you know you have the red flag. And I would really put, you know, push that person to seek some sort of help out of that because on the other side of that, yes, it's hard work, but it compares, it is not even 
comparable to the life that's on the other side. So the person that is that is me now, or that's just kind of cruise control, things are fine. They think that the absence of bad is a qualifier for good. That That is no way to live. Uh, life is meant to be so much bigger and brighter and fuller and more vibrant than that. So to that person, I would say you are the person that's going to have to be the catalyst. You don't have the red flag. So if you want to choose another way to live, you need to take a second and you need to look at your life. And only you know the things that are standing in your way from living fully. If you read a book like Living Fully, I talk about about 17 different subjects. In my life, there have been so many different ways that stood in the way of me living fully. So if you need something like that to jog your mind, you know, the book is out or um, you can certainly use a resource like a journal or, but you have to, you have to take the time and you have to, to step back and you have to, um, you have to be intentional about that search within yourself. And then you have to continue to choose that every day because life will always pull you back to baseline and cruise control and fine, I believe. It's just the way that life is. So you have to continue. I, I always say I want this book to be people's wake-up call. Like, oh, this is the thing. I'm going to work on this. But I want it to be their stay-awake call because living fully is continued, continuing to choose a bigger life over and over. Like as life just happens and you get busy and it starts to go like this again and plateau, it's choosing it again and again. So that's the advice that I would give to, to both of those people that I wrote to and about in the book. I was, I'm both of those people. So... Well, thank you so much, Mallory Irvin. It's a great book. I hope all of our listeners go pick up a copy because thank you. I think it's a message that all of us can benefit from, no matter where we are in life or what we're what we're dealing with. That reminder that we can make a choice every single day to live more fully if we want to. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Amy. This was such an honor to be on such a uh, an amazing platform like this, doing such amazing things. So, thank you. You're welcome. Welcome to the therapist take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Mallory's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Mallory's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, stop numbing your emotions. Mallory said that she used prescription drugs to ensure that she didn't have to feel anything. The medications that she took were legitimately prescribed by a doctor, but that didn't mean that they were good for her. Like Mallory said, There's absolutely nothing wrong with taking medication if it boosts your mood or it reduces your anxiety. But sometimes people get over-prescribed medication to the point where it interferes with their daily lives. If you have concerns or questions about the medications that you're taking, or whether it's a healthy dose, you can always get a second opinion. That's especially true now. You can even talk to a psychiatrist online. They can review your medications and talk about your options. But it's not just medication that is often used to numb our emotions. Food, alcohol, social media, video games, and just about anything else can be used to avoid painful feelings. When used in moderation, healthy coping skills can help you manage your emotions. But those same coping skills can become problematic when you use them to numb yourself. That's because you can't just numb the painful emotions. You'll end up numbing the positive emotions too. And if you want to live fully, you have to be able to experience a wide range of feelings, including the uncomfortable ones. If you find yourself numbing your feelings, consider getting some professional help. Talking to someone might help you find new ways to cope with uncomfortable feelings. Number two, journal to identify your unhealthy patterns. 
Mallory said writing in a journal has helped her recognize the unhealthy patterns in her life. Journaling is something that a lot of our guests have talked about. And I like that Mallory said she uses it to look for patterns as opposed to just venting. Looking for patterns in your life can be really helpful. It's one of the things that we often do in the therapy office. The same patterns often get played out in different relationships or in different challenges. Learning to recognize those patterns is the first step in interrupting them. So when you write in a journal, you might be able to spot those patterns on your own. Like maybe you sabotage yourself when you get anxious about reaching a goal. Or maybe you get sucked back into an unhealthy relationship whenever you feel lonely or bored. Sometimes just a few months of writing in a journal can help you zoom out and examine your life from a different perspective. And number three, create a full life, not a busy one. From the outside, a lot of people probably assume Mallory was living fully when she was in the Miss America pageant, when she was a contestant on reality TV. But she said that wasn't the case. Her self-worth depended on her achievement at that point. Now she's working on filling her life with meaningful things. And that helps her feel like she's living fully. So I challenge you to consider what changes you want to make to the overall picture of your life so that you can feel like you're living fully too. Whether that means adding some things to your calendar that are good for your physical health, or it means subtracting some things that are bad for your mental health. Take an inventory of how you're spending your time. It's easy to get caught up into doing the same things over and over again without getting proactive about how you're actually spending your life. So those are three of Mallory's strategies that could help you grow mentally stronger. Stop numbing your emotions, journal to identify your unhealthy patterns, and create a full life, not just a busy one. To hear more of Mallory's strategies, pick up a copy of her book, Living Fully, Dare to Step into Your Most Vibrant Life. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind Podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind Podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.